Now we continue together in the pastoral epistles, and I ask, if you will, to turn your copy of God's Word to 1 Timothy chapter 6. And we will look at two verses, the first two verses of 1 Timothy chapter 6. Now, for some who are new here with us this morning, our typical approach is to preach through books of the Bible and to preach what comes next. We believe that this honors the authority of God's Word and that it helps us also to begin to understand whole books of the Bible and to see the, the, uh, the unity of the Word of God. So when that happens, also the minister will sometimes come to a passage that he might not ordinarily choose to preach. And this is one of those passages. It's one of those passages, it's God's Word, it should be preached, but I just simply would not ordinarily go to it. And yet I have found it very full and very rich, and it might surprise you that I've come to the conclusion that it's one of the great missionary texts of the New Testament. So with that in mind, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, may the Lord bless the reading and exposition of His Word. This is the Word of God. Let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved." Let me remind you that the pastoral epistles are written by Paul the Apostle toward the end of his life. He is concerned that soon there will be no apostles. Paul the Apostle himself will be off the scene. And he's concerned that the good deposit of the truth be passed on from generation to generation. That there be faithful men in the church who will continue to proclaim this word. And possibly, to your surprise you find as you turn to the pastoral epistles that the Apostle Paul, as he considers that his life will soon end, dwells upon the church. He talks about preachers and elders and deacons and church members and widows and how the congregation is to respond to the Word. And in this passage, he addresses the issue of how slaves are to propel the gospel into the world. The Christian lives in two worlds. We are citizens of heaven, and we live in this present evil age. The fact that we are citizens of heaven determine, determines how we live in this dark, present, evil age until the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the fact that we are citizens of heaven that determines how we relate to governments, how we relate to our neighbor, how we are to serve Christ in our jobs. You'll recall that very recently at our last morning communion that I preached from Colossians 3 that says, if you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, we are to set our minds and our affections on things which are above, and this teaches us how to live the Christian life in this present evil age. 
Now, as Paul addresses, therefore, pastoral care, he's dealt with widows, for example, very recently in 1 Timothy, he must speak to the Christian slave in the Roman society. Now, these are not slaves in the Jewish world. The Old Testament has a great deal to say about slavery, but he's not focused there. He's talking about Christians who are slaves and how they are to relate to their masters in the province of Asia, in modern Turkey, in the city of Ephesus, circa 62 AD. I never cease to be excited about the fact that the Apostle Paul preached the gospel in the ancient Roman world. That world through which Alexander the Great and his hordes had spread the Greek language and culture, in which the Apostle Paul preaches in Greek, in which he follows Roman roads and trade routes, and in which he preaches the gospel to a pagan world. And there are many parallels today, especially the paganization of our culture. However, on this matter, there is a great distance. We are talking about slaves in the year 62 in the city of Ephesus. And by the grace of God, we in our culture today, in this country, do not have this same economic system of slave labor. So how do we bridge from the slave and what Paul says to the slave in 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2, to the present day? The way in which this usually happens, and I think this is right, is that the minister says something like this. We no longer live in a slave society, but nonetheless, each of us is an employer or an employee, and we are to take what Paul says here, and we are to apply it, in this case, to employees. Now, I think that's spot on. I think it's absolutely right, but not so fast. Before we get there, I want us to have a real understanding of the setting in which Paul the Apostle was writing. Before we begin to bridge from the first century A.D. to our own setting, I want us to have a very clear understanding of what Christians were enduring then and there before we apply it here and now. So the first thing that we want to do, the very first thing this morning, is to spend a little time on the historical background that would serve as the backdrop for understanding these two verses in which the Apostle Paul writes to slaves in Ephesus, or to Timothy, telling him how he is to instruct slaves in Ephesus. So for that historical background, let's remember that slavery was a fact of everyday life in the ancient world. Freed slaves found it hard to make a living, and many of them preferred enslavement. Every society in the ancient world was, to varying degrees, a slave society. In the Roman world, any free person could own a slave. Almost no one questioned the justice or the injustice of slavery in the ancient world. After the destruction of Carthage in 146 B.C., 50,000 slaves were brought to Italy. By the time of Augustus, Rome was dependent, completely dependent, on slave labor. Italy was 30% slave population. Other places in the empire, it is estimated, were 10% slave population. It has been estimated that at one point there were 60 million slaves in Roman society. Some were captured in war. Rome would go to war, they would capture, as they did in, in Carthage, and they would bring them back as slaves. 
Some were captured by slavers. And you recall that in the very first chapter of 1 Timothy, in verse 10, the Apostle Paul is speaking of those who are ungodly, and he says the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So the Apostle Paul condemned outright the uh, slavers of the first century A.D., capturing slaves. Some slaves actually purchased other slaves to help do their work. Even though those slaves would officially be owned by their masters, nonetheless, they purchased other slaves that would, in an ex officio way, be their own. Romans often freed their slaves, and then often those freed slaves received Roman citizenship. Ephesus, where Timothy is, as we read in this chapter, Ephesus was a slave center. Delos was one, Ephesus was another. It was a slave trading center. So Timothy is shepherding a flock, many of whom undoubtedly would have been slaves. It was a major slave market city in the ancient world. Most slaves were of the same race as their masters, and almost all of them spoke Greek. Slaves worked on farms. They worked in quarries. They were spinners and weavers. They were wet nurses and nurses, clerks, sculptors, painters, teachers, and some even held government posts and rose very high in society, though they remained slaves. What was the social, social attitude towards slavery in the Roman world? Well, in the Greek world, Plato and Aristotle actually thought that slavery was a matter of nature and not convention. In other words, they thought some were naturally born masters and others were naturally born slaves. The Romans did not think this, but slaves nonetheless were considered by them a commodity. Last night, a line from a novel that I had read years ago came to mind, Quo Vadis by Sinkiewicz. Perhaps some of you have read it. And I remember that on, um, in a certain section, uh, Vinicius, uh, who is uh, mourning over unrequited love, makes this statement, I will not sleep tonight. I will give command to flog one of my slaves and listen to his groans. Now, that's a novel, but it's true to the Roman world, and things like that undoubtedly did happen. The Romans then saw their slaves as commodities. And I think that I want to make a comment that is of great importance here, and that is that a high view of human respect comes from Christianity and really ultimately in the world from nowhere else. Christianity wanes in a society, respect for human beings wanes, which is what we're seeing in our own culture. When the New Testament calls believers slaves, with that Roman background in mind, when the New Testament uses the name doulos or douloi and calls believers slaves, that really says something, doesn't it? It's more than simply employer-employee, though I think that's a good application. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 22 and 23, the Apostle Paul says, For he who has called, who was called in, in, the, in the Lord as a slave is a freeman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called, is a slave of Christ. You who were bought with a price do not become the slaves of men. 
We are bought with a price. Christians are slaves of the Lord. Now, many slaves and masters in the ancient Roman world came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament era. And Paul never directly challenges the institution. I'll mention that again later. When we go to the end of um, Ephesians and Colossians, we have what are sometimes called household codes in which he addresses husbands and wives and parents and children's children, but also masters and slaves. Masters, he says in Colossians 4.1, must be just. Uh, masters must not threaten, Ephesians 6.9. Slaves must serve with sincerity of heart as a slave of Christ, Colossians 3.22, Ephesians 6, 5 through 7. Slaves must honor and not take advantage of their masters, uh, 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2. Now, much more can be said, but I want you to understand that behind these two verses, 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2, is a complex social structure of slavery, the like of which you and I, in our lifetime, have never known. And the striking thing, I think, as we come to this passage and others like it, is the stress on personal responsibility laid by the Apostle Paul on Christians. Uh, Personal responsibility in other places for Christian masters, personal responsibility in this passage and in others on slaves and how they are to respond to pagan and Christian masters. So do you understand, I don't want to quickly move to the employer-employee relationship. Good application, right application, but let's not start there. Understand that Paul the Apostle is writing in the thick of a very, very difficult and complex social problem. The second thing we want to do is actually look at the text. It's only two verses, very easily understood. As a matter of fact, let's read it again. Uh, Chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, the first two verses. Let all who are under a yoke as slaves... Regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Now, the first verse, the Apostle Paul in chapter 6, verse 1, is saying that the slave must respect his master And undoubtedly, he has in mind the pagan master here. I say that for two reasons. Verse 2 addresses how the slave is to relate to the Christian master without question. And because in verse 1 he says, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled, I think that we can readily come to the conclusion that in verse 1 he is saying, Timothy, this is what you say to the Christian slave and how he is to relate to his pagan unbelieving, unchristian master. And he says, this is what you're to tell him. Tell that slave, that Christian, that he is to relate to his pagan master as one who is worthy of all honor. And the reason that the Apostle Paul gives, look at it in verse 1, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. In other words, if he does not show honor to his master, that master will look at him and say, you know, I know why you're such a disloyal slave. I know why you're such an unprofitable servant. The reason is because of that Jesus you're always talking about. I've seen you slink off in the early dawn of Sunday morning and go worship that God of yours, and I know exactly why you're the way you are. 
That's what they're teaching you there in that church, aren't they? That's what you're hearing uh, from your Jesus, aren't you? Rather than that, by implication, what should be heard is, what makes you so loyal when I treat you so badly? Uh, What makes you work so hard when you're really not benefiting from it? Uh, What makes you tick? I'm I'm really wondering, what's going on in your heart and in in your life that you would work and be so loyal to me and honor me when I don't believe what you believe, I don't teach what you teach, I don't live the way you live, what makes you the slave, the person that you are? So that this master actually begins to view this commodity in a different way and to see in him something of the Lord Jesus to whom he ultimately is loyal. And then, in verse 2, a Christian slave should show even more honor to his Christian master. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit from their good service are believers and beloved. So the Apostle Paul is essentially saying, equality with Christ does not set aside the social order. A Christian slave must not despise his Christian master. He can't say, well, you know what, my master is a Christian, and therefore I can slough off. Therefore, I'm not going to render the same work that I would to uh, a pagan master. Before the pagan master, I have a testimony to be concerned with, but not here with the Christian master. Oh, no, no, the Apostle Paul says, let them serve all the more, all the better as they serve a Christian master. The reason? Because he says the masters are believers and beloved ones. Now, that's what the text teaches. It's very simple. And there are other texts that deal with this more fully. Both masters and slaves are addressed. But we have here two verses telling Timothy the pastor how he is to instruct Christians of Roman Ephesus and how they are to relate to pagan and to Christian masters as slaves. Now, I've asked myself this question, and I want to tell you I've seen no commentary that asks the question, no commentary that attempts to answer the question, but I wonder if it's occurred to you as you've read it. I asked myself the question, why does Paul address slaves here and not masters? Don't you find that peculiar, a bit odd? Uh, Why, you come to the end of Ephesians 6 and Colossians, he addresses masters and slaves in their mutual duties and obligations one to another. But why does Paul address slaves here and not masters? After all, he addresses both in other places. Well, maybe he's answering a question. Perhaps the question has come from Timothy, what am I going to say to these slaves in my congregation? Maybe that's it. Maybe he's concerned with trends and habits that he's seen in Ephesus, and he knows that Timothy will need to specifically instruct these slaves. Maybe since Ephesus was a leading center in the slave trade, he knows that there is great resentment. I think that's what's behind the passage in Titus, in which he says in uh, Titus 2 verses 9 and 10, slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. But then as I contemplated this this week, I hope you find this as exciting as I do. I felt like Indiana Jones when I discovered this. (laughs) 
As I contemplated this this week, a couple of my young friends, some young people dropped in on me this week. I took them over and I showed them. I have this map on my wall. And it's a map of Asia Minor, AD 40 to 63. It's a map that I love to study. Anytime I'm dealing with Paul, the cities of Paul, the cities in Revelation, I go to the map, I think about it, I study the map. It's a map that uh, accompanies William Ramsey's The Church in the Roman Empire. And it shows all the mountain regions, it shows everything, all the cities, it shows the trading routes. And when I saw this, I said, there's the reason, or at least one of them. (laughs) You see, here's Ephesus, way over here in the west, this port city. Coming into Ephesus is this trade route, major trade route. Then you watch it. Going out from Ephesus is this trade route. Going all the way across Asia Minor, all the way to the Euphrates River. Goes from Ephesus down through Laodicea, near Heropolis, all the way through Cappadocia, through the Taurus Mountains, to the Euphrates River. There's your answer. You see it, don't you? Well, <laughs> it's Paul's evangelistic heart. It's missions, folks. Paul the Apostle knows this is a major center. Timothy is going to pastor a congregation of slaves in large measure. Some of them are going to be coming down the trade routes into Ephesus. Others are going to be sold out of that congregation. And they will spread throughout the Roman Empire. Others will travel with their masters, and they will have opportunity to bear witness. So why does Paul Paul the Apostle address here slaves and not masters? Because Ephesus is a major slave center, and I am convinced he is saying, because these slaves are going to be a major force for spreading the good news of Jesus Christ throughout the globe. That was the insight I think the Lord gave me. So it's a missions text, this passage. Honor the master, this unbelieving pagan master who is selling you to whom you are going to be sold, with whom you are traveling. Honor him so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Now that leads me to the implications that we need to draw for our own lives from this passage today. What are we to make of this? How do we bridge from the slave society of the Roman world circa 62 AD to today? Let me give you five planks that are necessary for building this bridge from the ancient world to today. And the first plank is this. Here we see the subversive nature of the Christian faith. Now, subversive is usually not a good word. Here I intend it to be a very good word. The Christian faith is by its very nature subversive. Why didn't Paul the Apostle say, free the slaves? Slaves, do everything you can just to get free, and you Christian masters, just 
free the slaves? Well, some of you may need to think about this answer, but the reason is because it is not the church's duty to transform unjust social structures, not directly. Now, liberal denominations will tell you that's what the gospel is all about, transforming unjust social structures, and often the social structures that they want to transform their view of justice is quite different, I think, than what the Bible teaches justice to be. But it is not the church's duty calling by Christ the head and king of the church to address the transformation of unjust social structures. No. The church, and I'm talking about the church's institution. I'm not saying what you do as a Christian politician or what you do in the voting booth as a Christian. I'm talking about the church's institution. The church is called to preach the gospel. The church is called to preach the cross of Christ. The church is called to preach the resurrected Lord and to start with a person's personal relationship with God. The church's concern is conversion and discipleship. But then do you know what happens? As this person and that person and that person and another person is transformed, their view of human beings is transformed, their views of society will be transformed, and what happens? Unjust social structures are transformed. But it's subversive, it's indirect. Hendrickson put it this way, and I think it's beautiful. Paul's way toward a solution commends itself by reason of its evident wisdom. It avoids extremes which would have resulted in much harm both to the slave and to his master and would have reflected dishonor upon the cause of the Christian religion. He advocated neither outright revolt by the slaves nor the continuation of the status quo. Instead of recommending either of these, he aimed by the law of indirection to destroy the very essence of slavery. And with all its attendant evils, this method, though for a while maintaining slavery in outward form, was nevertheless the surest and most commendable way of working toward the final goal of complete abolition of this gruesome inhuman institution. It aimed to destroy slavery without waging a war to do so. Let the slave honor his master and let the master be kind to his slave. Let both bear in mind that with God there is no respect to persons. That was the principle. Thus the ill will, dishonesty, and laziness of many slaves will be replaced by willing service, integrity, and industry. Thus also the cruelty and brutality of many masters would melt into kindness and love. The grace of Christ working from within outward, which is ever the way of the kingdom of God would become a penetrating leaven tending to transform the whole lump. And he's right. The Christian faith works from within outward. And Paul's way of speaking is absolutely revolutionary. Remember, in the Roman world, the slave is a commodity. He's a thing owned. J.B. Lightfoot, reflecting on Paul, says, The philosophers of Greece taught and the laws of Rome assumed that the slave was a chattel. But a chattel could have no rights. It would be absurd to talk of treating a chattel with justice. But that's just what Paul does. He tells Christian masters, treat your slaves with justice and with kindness and with mercy. And so what the Apostle Paul is teaching eventually blows slavery out of the water. 
But his direct concern is not to change the institution. His direct concern is to preach the gospel of sovereign free grace. Let the church ever learn that the way of the kingdom of God is to preach the word, preach the cross, preach the resurrected Lord. And then when persons are changed from within, we see a change without. That's the first bridge from the ancient world to our own. Second, the second plank. I think we see here the ennobling character of work. The ennobling character of work. Now, it's more explicit in other passages, but I think it's implicit here. Work is a creation ordinance along with marriage and the Sabbath. And Paul the Apostle is saying, honor your master. What would that mean? It would mean work hard and work well. Work hard and work conscientiously. And so he says in other places, when the slave is to work, it must not be I service. In other words, only when the master's watching does he work. That always makes work drudgery. But the Christian view is that your labor is before the Lord and it is your vocation. Your work is your calling. Scripture does not spare sloth, laziness, and idleness. And one of the things that was restored in the Protestant Reformation was this idea that every man's work is his vocation, every man's work is his calling. And so we see here the ennobling character of work. Now let's lay the third plank, which is intimately related to this. And the third plank is the call of the employee. I'm not going to focus on the employer this morning. I've done that with other passages because Paul is dwelling on the slave to the master. I focus on the employee to the employer. I didn't want to come to this bridge too quickly, but we've come to this plank in our bridge. The economic structure of our day means that Christian employees must work honestly for their employers as unto the Lord. Now, in the Oxford Classical Dictionary... There's a great article on slavery, and it says that slaves tended to display resistance by running away, playing truant, working inefficiently, pilfering, and sabotaging property. And I said, my, my, that's just like today. Playing truant, working inefficiently, pilfering, or sabotaging property? Many an employee does that very thing today. I remember that I worked one summer couple of summers, but on this particular summer, working for my father. And my father left me um, with a a well-trained individual and was given a job to do. And I remember that as we went to do that job, he looked at the job, he looked at his watch, and he thought, well, let's just sit here for the rest of the afternoon. Well, of course, I didn't know the job. Not much I could do about it except tell my father later, which I did. But I learned something. I was beginning to see how men on jobs could just sit it out when they are not in the eye of the employer or the master. Now, if you can improve your condition, do so. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. But the attitude that we hear in the country music song, take this job and 
Guys, I'm especially talking to the men. Not biblical. It is not right. It does not honor Jesus. It does not honor the Savior. I remember a young woman Her father was a believer. I remember this young woman. She was a teenage girl. She was in one of her first jobs coming before her father, kind of bursting in and talking about, how dare my employer demand that I do this and demand that I do that? Nothing great. She was incensed. The thing that surprised me was not that the teenager reacted like that. All right, Our children need correction, don't they? They need to be taught, don't they? I wasn't surprised by that. I was surprised that the father took her side. And that the father didn't say, wait a minute, sit down, let's open the Bible and let's see what it says about work. Which leads us to the next plank, the fourth plank in building this bridge from the first century A.D. to today. And it's this, work as Christian witness. Work as Christian witness. The New Testament is very concerned that the lives of Christians give no ground for reproach upon the gospel. Let me say it again. The New Testament is very concerned that the lives of Christians give no ground for reproaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if my call is a minister of word and sacrament, I am called to work hard in my calling If your calling is a doctor, a lawyer, an electrician, a plumber, a homemaker, a student with homework, your calling is to work hard for your master. That's your calling. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. In 1 Peter 2. Verses 11 and 12. I want you to see, this is Paul's concern, Peter's concern here, shared by Paul in other places, of how we witness to the world. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He's concerned with our conduct, how the world views us, how the world sees us, how the world sees our conduct. And then he goes on to say in verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every institution. He even says, honor the emperor in verse 17. And then he addresses slaves, Peter does in verse 18. Look at it. Servants, Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it when you sin and are are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God, for to this you have been called. He doesn't say it's your fate. He says you have been called to this. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. 
And so back here in 1 Timothy 6, 1, when he says, let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. I ask you this question. What can be more important than God's name? What can be more important to the Christian than the teaching? That is the truth. What can be more important than to preach by your life in the setting in which God has placed you? by how you work for your employer. So Paul's concern in this passage is thoroughly missiological, evangelistic, and apologetic. Years ago, I remember Sinclair Ferguson telling this story. He went to see a a businessman in, in Scotland. I don't know the reason. But he had to go there several times, and every time he went, there was a particular woman that was always busy at her typewriter. Now, this was before computers. Always busy at her typewriter, always at work, always busy at her typewriter. So one day when Dr. Ferguson was there and was speaking to the head of the company, he said, I noticed this person here is always busy. There are others in your office that perhaps aren't, but she's always busy at her typewriter. This man, this employer, who was not a Christian, said to Dr. Ferguson, oh, she's a Christian. You see? In other words, of course she's going to work hard. She's a Christian. It was expected because of her faith, because of her love for Jesus, because of her profession, that she was going to work hard and well. I offer the suggestion, if you really want to see the transformation of society, you work for Jesus well where you are. Cheerful, hearty labor, rather than saying, let's do the least we can for the most we can get. So very clearly we learn, as we apply this text... We are to learn to live with honesty and work with integrity and with industry because the way we work is our witness for Christ that will often give you opportunity to say a word for Christ. Because like that master in first century Rome who says, what makes you the slave you are, so loyal, so hardworking, Maybe after a year or two of faithful working, your employer will pull you aside and say, hey, can I take you to lunch and ask you some questions? You're different when things go wrong. You're joyful when others aren't. I never see you gossip about people in the office. You know what? You are so conscientious in your work. I want to know what makes you tick. And then the final plank from the first century A.D. to our own, believers are slaves of God. That's really what's behind it all, isn't it? You be obedient, honor your pagan master. You be one who honors your Christian master because ultimately every Christian is a slave of a higher master. 
Yes, you are a son, but also you are doulos, slave. Unbeliever, let me tell you, you're a slave either of those things that are killing and destroying you, either a slave of sin or you're a slave of Christ. No other option, none whatsoever. The Christian is free even when he is a slave. The Christian is a slave even when he is free. We all will face some circumstances from which we will not be freed in this life. A wheelchair, a respirator, a tough job. But every Christian is free. No matter the circumstance. So Christian, we live in two worlds. Our citizenship is in heaven. The world to come is determinative of how we live now. So that if we don't have all that we would like to have, if we don't have everything in life going our way, if things are hard and things are tough, if we would like to be free from circumstances that we just simply can't be freed from in this life, the Christian says, I have an inheritance that is undefiled, unfading, that is reserved for me in heaven. This world is determined by the eternity of the next. Do you see? Doesn't mean don't try and improve your circumstances. It's the way in which you go about it that matters. So even the slave may, in Christ, be a free and noble man. Even a prisoner put in prison for his faith. Let me ask you, who is really imprisoned? Is it the Christian who is imprisoned for his faith, or is it the person who does the imprisoning? Hmm? Is there anything more important to you than your personal freedom? There should be, and that's your witness to Christ. Even in that hard job, you may be a free man or a free woman. And God says through Paul's epistles, I'm concerned about the evangelistic and apologetic value of your life more than I am your personal comfort. Remember, you are a citizen of heaven. So live for Christ. Live for him in your attitude. Show that you are purchased by his blood. Demonstrate that you are saved by grace. Show that you are a citizen of heaven by your work, by your joy, by your peace, by your Christ-centeredness, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Christian, you go back into your workplace with a different viewpoint on Monday. You go into that hard situation if you, by God in his providence, have been placed in such a circumstance. You go with the determination that you will lift high the cross in the way in which you work, not ultimately for that man or woman, but ultimately for the Lord Jesus Christ, 
who has purchased you with his own shed blood. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.